Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everyone. This is episode 10 of the Rebuttal Podcast. It's Reb. What it do? Trigger warnings for this episode for sexual assault and violence against women, people, children. And you should definitely not listen if that is not going to be something you can handle. I'm not offended. I love you. Take care of yourselves. But this has been the trigger warning for the whole episode. Love you so much. Okay, bye. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Rebuttal Podcast. My name is Reb Maisel, your host, as always. And today, before I jump right into the topic that has been on my mind for quite a long time and what I have wanted to do an entire episode on, since I read this case, I want everyone to note that I will be using the terms Indian and Native American interchangeably in this episode, not because that is a commentary on which one I believe is more appropriate. A majority, if not all, of the case law and federal law on the issue of tribal sovereignty and Native American relations between the federal government and tribal lands and the tribes use the term Indian. That's the named term for many of these federal enforcement uh, departments and authorities. For example, there is a bureau, a federal bureau called the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the BIA. That is still the name today. So please know that I am doing my best to kind of plug in the term Native American where I can or the term Native or Indigenous where I can because I do believe that those terms are more appropriate and uh, the terms that actual Native individuals and people would prefer. But when I say the term Indian, it is not because I am making a decision. It is because it is simply the text that I'm reading from, from these cases and from the laws at issue. So I understand. I understand. Okay. But this is literally just what the law says. And I wish they would change it, but they haven't. And I, I just need to read to you what, what's at stake and, and what the law is. And obviously the fact that all of these laws continue continue to call um, this law literally Indian law, Indian tribal law, Indian relations, American Indians, just underscores the lack of awareness and lack of care that has been shown our indigenous nations and indigenous people in this country. So thank you for listening to my disclaimer. Let's get into it. Today, the third leading cause of death among Native American women is murder. 
and the murder rates of Native American women on some reservations is as much as 10 times higher than the national average. According to the Justice Department, Native American women are two to three times more likely than women of any other race to experience violence, stalking, or sexual assault. More than four out of five Native American women have reported that they have been the victim of violence. And 96% of them described their attacker as non-Native American, according to a 2016 National Institute of Justice report. But ever since a 1978 Supreme Court decision titled Oliphant versus Suquamish Indian Tribe, tribes have had limited authority to detain and prosecute non-tribal citizens. That means if a non-Native American commits an act of violence against a Native person on tribal lands, it's up to federal prosecutors to decide whether to pursue the case. This is a festering legal problem that experts say affects all Native Americans but has been particularly catastrophic for victims of domestic and sexual violence, which has contributed to the epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous women in the United States. For nearly half a century, tribal nations have lacked the authority to prosecute people who are not members of their tribe or any tribe, even though According to the Department of Justice, those non-Native Americans are responsible for most of the violent crimes committed against Native Americans on tribal lands. One case demonstrating how these cases are handled is the case of Leslie Ironroad. Leslie Ironroad lay dying in her hospital bed at 20 years old in 2003. She scribbled a statement to a police officer and identified every single man by name who had raped her, beat her, and locked her in the bathroom, where she attempted to overdose on prescription medication to escape further harm. In her statement to police, she told them that she believed if she were unconscious, they would leave her alone. She passed away in that hospital room about a week later. No charges were ever filed against any of the men. Members of the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation indicate that the police never even investigated the men she identified. The Bureau of Indian Affairs, the BIA, police officer who took her statement did not follow up on her case because in his words, quote, federal prosecutors only take the ones with a confession. This is indicative of a larger problem. Federal prosecutors declined to prosecute 67% of sexual abuse cases committed on tribal lands, despite the fact that Indigenous women have a 2.5 times higher chance of experiencing sexual violence in their lifetime than the general United States population, and statistically, roughly 37% of Indigenous women have experienced and will experience sexual assault in their lifetime. Not only are Native women more likely to be raped, they are more likely to have injuries, and their injuries are often more severe. The perpetrators overwhelmingly come from outside the Native American community, aka non-tribal members, and their crimes generally go uninvestigated and unprosecuted. Thus, even though Native American women are more likely to be sexually assaulted, their aggressors are less likely to be prosecuted. Jurisdictional issues present the main barrier to prosecution and play a large role in this disparity. There are 2,380 
Bureau of Indian Affairs and Tribal Officers, serving 1.4 million Native Americans on over 56 million acres of tribal lands in this country. This means there are only 1.3 officers per 1,000 citizens. It could take hours for a tribal officer to even arrive at a scene where they may not even have the jurisdiction to act. In all, federal statutes and case law set out an unduly complex system where criminal jurisdiction over offenses committed in, quote, Indian country depends on a number of factors, the type of crime, where it occurred, and the tribal membership status of the victim and the perpetrator. While tribal courts technically may prosecute the small proportion of perpetrators who are Native American, the Indian Civil Rights Act limits punishment to one year of imprisonment, a $5,000 fine, or both, which is far less than the state and federal penalties for the same crimes, which generally exceed 8 and 12 years. Further, even if a tribe asserts jurisdiction, the lack of funding for tribal law enforcement restricts investigation and prosecution. Some tribes even curtail law enforcement activities related to crimes of sexual violence because they believe that they lack the ability to arrest suspects. Although Congress has the power to legislate around these issues, they have generally neglected to take any action. The passage of the Violence Against Women Act is the only legislative act which attempts to alleviate the crippling rates of crime on reservations by providing tribes the authority to prosecute. The solution rests in Congress to address the issue of crime, but they have failed to do so. This is in part due to the fact that there is no tribal representation in Congress. Although tribes have the right to vote in federal elections, their population is too small to obtain any major victories in popular elections alone. While the 2020 election saw a record turnout for tribal members, only six congressional seats are currently held by representatives who belong to a tribe. Even at the state level, it was not until 2018 that any state elected a Native American to executive office. That was with Peggy Flanagan, who was elected as lieutenant governor of Minnesota. Without adequate representation, Congress will continue to neglect its duties to address crime on reservations. This all started way back when, if you can imagine, right? For over two centuries, Native American tribes have been left in a tenuous position in the American constitutional law scheme. This tenuous position is underscored by the explicit bias and discrimination against Native American tribes and Native American people that has persisted in the law, in citable case law, for centuries. In Cherokee Nation versus Georgia, an 1831 Supreme Court case, Justice Johnson's dissenting opinion stated, quote, there are strong reasons for doubting the applicability of the of the epithet state to a people so low in the grade of organized society as our Indian tribes most generally are. The late Supreme Court Justice Scalia summed up the complexity of federal Indian law when he stated, quote, you know, when it comes to Indian law, most of the time we're just making it up. This episode is going to briefly address and summarize and give you the Sparks Notes version of the history behind tribal sovereignty 
and the complicated relationship between these tribes, their ability to govern themselves, but also the federal government's absolute inability and hesitation to protect their most vulnerable and ensure that their ability to prosecute those who commit crimes against their people, most often Native American women and children, is not hindered. Jurisdiction is our theme today and also justice because there needs to be a lot more of it for our Native population, for our Native women, for our Native children, for our Native people. And the answer lies in Congress, unfortunately. To give you some background, okay, to give you some brief history of how Native American tribes and people have had this relationship with our colonizing United States government, we're going to start off with a very brief, very broad strokes overview of the history and relationship between Native American tribes and the colonizing ass United States government. The United States Constitution makes only two passing references to its sovereign neighbors. The first excludes, quote, Indians not taxed from apportionment of representation in the House of Representatives. And the second in the Indian Commerce Clause, which grants Congress the authority to, quote, regulate commerce with the Indian tribes. Both of these clauses in the United States Constitution recognize that tribes are not part of the United States and are, in fact, distinct sovereign entities. However, this presents one of the earliest questions of federalism, a.k.a. the relationship between the federal government and states, right? Did the states or the federal government possess authority over the Native American tribes? And mind you, if you're not watching on YouTube, go watch. I am using air quotes as, as needed, as necessary. Almost immediately after the Constitution was ratified, Congress vested its power to regulate commerce with the Indian tribes with the executive branch, so the federal government. Okay, Congress basically said, hey, um, the president, his secretaries can deal with it, can, can regulate commerce between us and the tribes. It'll probably be fine, right? Sure. It was not until 1831 that the Supreme Court explicitly addressed the question of the tribe's place within the federal system in Cherokee Nation versus Georgia. In that case, the state of Georgia was attempting to execute state laws over the Cherokee Nation, who then filed for injunctive relief, arguing that they were a foreign nation. Chief Justice Marshall found that the Cherokee Nation was not a state, nor did they constitute a, quote, foreign nation. Rather, he described them as, quote, domestic dependent nations who fall, quote, completely under the sovereignty and dominion of the United States. However, Chief Justice Marshall refused to address whether the state or federal government held authority in this field. In 1832, Chief Justice Marshall finally addressed this question of federalism in Worcester versus Georgia. He explained that the relationship is one of a nation receiving the protection of another, not one of individuals, quote, abandoning their national character and submitting themselves as subjects to the laws of a master. 
Absolutely. Tribes possess a full right to the lands they occupy until that right should be extinguished by the United States. This settled the federalism debate in the federal government's favor, finding that the Constitution, quote, confers on Congress the powers of war and peace, of making treaties, and of regulating commerce with foreign nations, and among the several states and with the Indian tribes. By the early 20th century, however, Congress had removed a significant portion of tribal territory. In 1924, Congress finally passed the Citizenship Act, making, quote, all non-citizen Indians born within the territorial limits of the United States American citizens. Through allotment and citizenship, the field of federal Indian law became much more complicated. Reservations were now dotted with plots owned by white settlers and others with tribal members. Further, every tribe member was now subject to the Constitution by virtue of the Citizen Act. What followed was a period of revival, where tribes began asserting more authority over their own natural resources and reservation businesses while developing government and tribal court systems. However, due to the tortured history of assimilation and allotment, reservations were not uniform, uniformly inhabited by tribe members, but interspersed with non-Indian landholders. This brought the assertion of tribal authority over non-members to the forefront of federal Indian law. The presence and prevalence of non-tribal members on Native American lands, tribal lands, is very much still prevalent today. For instance, on the reservation, which is the subject of the case I'm going to talk to you about, United States versus Cooley, a Supreme Court case issued in 2021, just over 51% of the residents in those tribal lands are non-Indian. All in all, okay, non-Indians, non-Native Americans, non-tribal members can represent almost up to half or even over half of the population on reservations, despite the fact, right, that those reservations are tribal lands. So the sovereignty, the jurisdiction, okay, the jurisdiction over the activity occurring on those tribal lands is in question. If you are a non-tribal member, you could be committing heinous crimes and nothing can happen to you. The question of tribal criminal jurisdiction over non-members did not arise earlier because tribal governments and judicial systems only obtained the sophistication and resources necessary to exercise such jurisdiction in the second half of the 20th century. So essentially, tribal governments started creating and organizing the structures necessary to actually try to prosecute individuals who were committing crimes on tribal lands. At that time, there was not any conclusive authority on whether or not tribal police officers, those tribal systems, justice systems, could actually have jurisdiction, quote-unquote, over non-members of their tribe. There, there was no case law and, or congressional authority on whether or not tribal police officers could be the ones to throw those people in jail and prosecute them, right? Until... 1978, when the Supreme Court issued its opinion in Oliphant versus Suquamish Indian Tribe. In that case, two non-natives were arrested by the Suquamish Indian Tribe. One, Daniel Belgard, for allegedly participating in a high-speed race and colliding with a tribal officer's vehicle, and two, Mark Oliphant, for assaulting a tribal officer. The Supreme Court 
rejected the doctrinal principles of federal Indian law and instead created something entirely different. What case law refers to as, quote, the implicit divestiture principle, which sounds confusing and complicated, and it is, but I'll break it down for you. According to the Supreme Court in that case in 1978, quote, by submitting to the overriding sovereignty of the United States, Indian tribes therefore necessarily give up their power to try non-Indian citizens of the United States in se- except in a manner acceptable to Congress. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Are we getting that? Amazing. Perfect. To support this conclusion, the court assumed the tribes lacked the inherent ability to adequately try non-members. Rather than proceed or include any type of in-depth analysis on whether or not Congress had actually ever divested the tribe of their inherent authority to do this. Okay, so essentially the Supreme Court said, hey, we think you are, quote unquote, primitive. We don't think that you can actually prosecute non-members to a degree that we that we like. So if they commit any crimes on your land, um, not not your problem, that's for sure. I mean, it's your problem, but just not your solution. So essentially told them, no, you do not have the power to try to prosecute these individuals for their high speed race and for assaulting a tribal police officer. Nope, you don't. You can prosecute members of your tribe, right? That's exciting. That's That'll solve your problems for sure. But anyone who decides to come on to tribal land, okay, literally come on at any time. Uh, yeah, that's not that's not your jurisdiction. Sorry, you don't have the power to do that. And Congress hasn't granted you the power to do that. So sucks to fucking suck. Okay, that was Oliphant. Okay, that was that case. Since 1978, I mean, since early on, right? But like most, most horribly since 1978, because there was what Supreme Court, Supreme Court case law basically saying get fucked. You can imagine that the rates, these, these high, high, high rates of crimes committed by non-members, okay, non-Native Americans against tribal members on Native American lands, on tribal lands, is huge, grew exponentially. This is basically a get out of jail free card. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you out of your mind? Especially when what? There's there's a 1.2 tribal officers per, you know, a thousand people on, on Native American reservations in this country. Fuck yeah, I'm going to roll the dice and commit a fucking crime on there. I'm going to drive onto your land, 
assault your women and look you dead in the eyes and say, what are you going to do about it? That is obscene. And to think that, you know, even to the extent that the Supreme Court justices and Oliphant thought, oh, well, this is not our place. Like, it's Congress's place to do this. It wasn't like there were any hard stances in the opinion saying, hey, we can't help you, but Congress needs to fucking do something. They were just like, go fuck yourselves, which is abhorrent. And after the Supreme Court opinion was issued in 1978, Congress should have sprinted, should have ran, should have flown to their fucking seats, okay? To vote on something, on, on, on federal congressional law that would grant them that, that ability to prosecute non-members. But they didn't because they, they don't fucking give a shit. When, when there isn't representation, apparently it means that no one gives a fuck about you. Apparently, congressional members can only have empathy for people who look like them and who are them which is amazing and perfect and beautiful and gorgeous because of course that's that's what we need in this country right fuck this decision basically said fuck you to all of the prior authority of established federal native american law and also congressional plenary power okay this decision was wrongly decided in my opinion and many other experts opinions okay this is not just like a a fucking oh well they were doing what they were supposed to be doing no it, it basically ignored everything that that the native american tribes had fought for which was sovereignty yes and and being recognized as an independent nation yes but a dependent nation which also depended upon the willingness of the united states federal government to protect them to grant them the protections they need to protect themselves and in this case the ability to protect themselves comes with the ability to prosecute if you want to commit crimes heinous crimes federal right felonies on tribal land you are submitting yourself to the jurisdiction of being fucked by tribal authority sorry that's my opinion and it stands and it's not going to fucking change Okay, if you want to go on to tribal land, if you want to even want to live on these reservations, right? When upwards of 50, 60% of certain areas of, of reservations are non-member populations, guess fucking what, bitch? It doesn't matter if there's only one Native American and the entire fucking 100-mile radius and you outnumber them, guess what? You are on tribal fucking land. And you deserve to have your ass handed to you and you deserve to be prosecuted under their laws, under their jurisdiction if you decide to commit a crime there. Because clearly, as I've fucking demonstrated with respect to federal prosecutors, okay, who refuse to prosecute these crimes specifically sexual crimes committed against the women and children who are Native Americans who reside on these tribal reservations, what else are they supposed to do? What other choice have you given them? If they, they've literally, tribal officers have literally brought these individuals, these non-members to the doorstep of federal prosecutors, to the FBI, and said, hi, this is them, here's the evidence, prosecute, and they've said no. In upwards of 36% of cases, they say no.
We declined to prosecute. Even though so many of these Native American indigenous women are so much more likely to be victims of violent sexual domestic crimes. Even though you have, as a Native American woman, you have a likelier chance of being murdered than anyone, anyone else in this country. The federal prosecutors, the federal government has said, uh, we decline. We decline. And it's not because, right? If it were actually because we are respecting the sovereignty of these Native American nations, then we would also grant them the fucking power to have the sovereignty and the independence to prosecute on their own terms or prosecute on terms that align with the principles, elements of due process of the Constitution. Fine, right? If that's your fucking requirement, then give them the resources and give them the ability to do that. But to say in a Supreme Court opinion, hey, we know that the jurisdiction issue is sketchy and weird and complicated. You guys have sovereignty for sure. You guys are you guys are yourselves, right? You're yourselves. You are independent nations for sure. You do your thing, um, but you can't do your thing with respect to any non-members. And also, um, we're not going to help you. Do you see how fucked that is? Do you see how fucked that is? After Oliphant, okay? After Oliphant, which basically said, hey, you have no authority over non-members. Get fucked. The court, the Supreme Court, extended this new weird implicit divestiture theory, okay, into the civil realm in Montana versus United States. This case considered whether the Crow tribe possessed the inherent authority to control hunting and fishing of non-members who owned land within the reservation. Following the principles of Oliphant, the court stated that the, quote, areas in which such implicit divestiture of sovereignty has been held to have occurred are those involving the relations between an Indian tribe and non-members of the tribe, unquote. Thus, in this case in Montana, it held, quote, tribes only retain inherent sovereignty to exercise some forms of civil jurisdiction in two cases. One, they may regulate through taxation, licensing, or other means the activities of non-members who enter consensual relationships with the tribe or its members through commercial dealing, contracts, leases, or other arrangements, or two, they may retain the inherent power to exercise civil authority over the conduct of non-Indians on land owned within its reservation when that conduct threatens or has some direct effect on the political integrity, economic security, or health or welfare of the tribe. Since hunting and fishing on land owned on the reservation does not involve agreements between the members or non-members and nothing suggests, quote unquote, that those activities harm the political or economic security, the tribe does not possess the inherent authority to regulate it. That was what the Supreme Court said in Montana. It just, I mean, I have to take deep breaths. It's, it's, I, I mean, it's, it's like, it's like giving, oh, oh, you want to be, you want to be your own nation. Okay. Well, here's your own nation. And also you can't do anything about your own nation. You can't, you can't do anything to protect your tribe, its lands, uh, or, or, you know, regulate what's happening on it, but enjoy your dumb fucking land. That's literally what the United States says. 
after we stole this land. Oh my God. After we stole this land. We stole this land. We stole it. And we are telling them, here is the land that you want back. We're so sorry. You're right. It is tribal land. But hey, guess what? You have no fucking power to regulate any aspect of it unless we decide you do. Which is going to be in in some limited fucking times. Oh my God. This is the type of shit that makes me want to get up in front of the Supreme Court and start chatting. Start chatting away. In the decades following the court's decisions in Oliphant and Montana, the decisions of the court were far from uniform. In Marion versus Jicarilla Apache tribe, for example, the court returned to the proper canons of construction and found the tribe possessed the, quote, general authority as sovereign to control economic activity within its jurisdiction, to tax non-natives who harvest mineral resources from reservation land, and that the federal government had not divested the tribe of its inherent ability to do so. Snaps. See, like the court was fucking was fucking on a fucking seesaw back and forth for the next couple years. The Marion case was issued in 1982. And then, all right, the Supreme Court seesawed the fuck back and said, just kidding. In 19, what, 1989? In Brendale versus Confederated Tribes and Bands of Yakima Indian Nation, the court returned to the reasoning of Oliphant and Montana when addressing whether a tribe possessed the inherent authority to zone all lands within their reservation, including lands owned by non-members. I swear to fucking God. The plurality opinion concluded that the tribe did not have the ability to zone those areas held by non-members as it, quote, does not imperil any interest of the Yakima nation. How does it not? How does it fucking not? It is their fucking land. It's their fucking land. Fuck you. While the Supreme Court oscillated between the principles of explicit and implicit divestiture, Congress had taken steps to recognize the importance of tribal justice systems and their role in tribal sovereignty. In 1991, Congress amended the Indian Civil Rights Act to address tribal jurisdiction over non-member Indians. This amendment was in direct response to the Supreme Court's decision in Duro versus Raina, where the court held that tribes did not have criminal misdemeanor jurisdiction over non-member Indians. See, this is what's supposed to happen is the Supreme Court issues an opinion and the Congress has to fucking respond and say, hey, yeah, no, just kidding. Like, like my thing is, right, the whole idea of separation of powers in this instance is in this context, especially, is if the Supreme Court, OK, even even in a well-meaning way, issues an opinion and says, look, we think it's pretty fucked that y'all don't have a jurisdiction over non-members like that's pretty fucked up. We don't think that we have the power to give it to you, though. We're just recognizing that Congress hasn't given you that power. So Congress should step up. OK, should step up. And then Congress in seeing it, OK, like a fucking memorandum, right? A little memo. Get the memo, right? Hey, you guys, by the way, Congress should immediately fly to its fucking job. OK, clock the fuck in and remedy that by saying, hey, the Supreme Court said it's our problem. We're going to make it our problem. We're going to fix it which is exactly what they did after Duro, okay? Where Duro, in that case, the court said that, imagine, imagine, Native Americans, tribal justice systems have no jurisdiction, none, no criminal jurisdiction over non-member Indians. That's obscene and insane. They said no, none at all, okay? 
And essentially, in their in the Congress's amendment to the Indian Civil Rights Act, it held, okay, it basically granted Native American tribes on tribal lands the power to have misdemeanor criminal jurisdiction over non-members, which the Supreme Court then reviewed, okay, in United States versus Laura and found that yes, Congress does have the power to lift the restriction on the tribe's criminal jurisdiction. So the court, okay, in United States versus Laura in where? 2004. In 2004, the fucking Supreme Court held, hey, yeah. So we know that we didn't have the power to do this, but Congress passed an amendment to the Indian Civil Rights Act, which granted tribal lands, Native American tribes, the power to prosecute non-members for misdemeanor crimes. Misdemeanor. And the court said, quote, Congress does possess the constitutional power to lift the restriction on the tribe's criminal jurisdiction. And that tribal prosecution of misdemeanor crimes is an exercise of the tribe's inherent sovereign power. Are you understanding how fucking asinine it is then that apparently if a crime is above a fucking misdemeanor still to this day, still to this day, tribes do not have the power to prosecute. Do you understand how fucking asinine it is for Congress to sit in its dumb fucking seat? And grant tribes the power to prosecute shoplifters, but not the power to prosecute rapists who are non-members. If I had to flip a fucking coin and choose which one I'd like to be able to prosecute, I'm thinking the second. I'm thinking the fucking second. God fucking damn it. However, okay, yes, I talk fucking major massive fucking shit about Congress because fuck y'all, but for the past 50 or so years, Congress has, even in little or bigger parts, taken consistently taken action to affirm tribal authority, meaning uphold it, meaning say yes to it, meaning we like it, okay, and not to restrict it. Congress has basically continuously affirmed it and not restricted it. I repeat, okay, it's consistent, it's history, it's precedent, it's intent. Okay, legislative intent is important here. In 2013, in direct response to the crisis of non-Indian members perpetrating violence against Native women, Congress, quote, recognized and affirmed the inherent power of tribal nations to arrest and prosecute non-Indians who commit crimes of domestic violence, dating violence, or violations of protective orders on tribal lands. In reauthorizing the Violence Against Women's Act in 2013, Congress specifically identified the loss of tribal criminal jurisdiction over non-Indian crimes on tribal lands as a major contributing factor to the incredibly high rates of violence against Native women, stating that, quote, unfortunately, much of the violence against Indian women is perpetrated by non-Indian men. This is Congress. Citing statistics. This is not theory. This is fact. According 
to Census Bureau data, well over 50% of all Native American women are married to non-Indian men and thousands of others are in intimate relationships with non-Indians, unquote. Okay, that was a quote. As Senator Tom Udall explained, quote, here is the problem. Tribal governments are unable to prosecute non-Indians for domestic violence crimes. They have no authority over these crimes against Native American spouses or partners within their own tribal lands. Non-Indian perpetrators often go unpunished, yet over 50% of Native women are married to non-Indians and 76% of the overall population living on tribal lands is non-Indian, unquote. This is a 2013 statement, okay? In addition to the Violence Against Women's Act... Just over 10 years ago, Congress also passed the Tribal Law and Order Act of 2010. In passing the Tribal Law and Order Act, Congress restored and expanded tribal authority to address the problem of crime in Indian country by, among other things, increasing the length of sentences that tribal courts may impose for crimes committed within their Indian country jurisdictions. In addition to expanded sentencing authority... The Tribal Law and Order Act mandates cooperation between federal, state, tribal, and local governments for the purpose of reducing crime in Indian country. Congressional trends towards tribal self-sovereignty indicate a strong intent to allow tribes to exercise authority over members and non-members alike within tribal boundaries. In addition to the act enhancing tribal criminal jurisdiction and sentencing authority, okay, it also required that defendants have constitutional rights. So if like the fucking issue, right, is, oh, like, well, tribal authority, right? Like what they can just prosecute people with no due process. Guess fucking what, bitch? They already intended to provide for the constitutional due process, right? Every amendment fucking right. Fourth Amendment, First Amendment, Sixth Amendment, Ninth Amendment. Okay? Fucking rights that defendants have. Okay? And Congress affirmed that and said yes you need to make sure that they do have those but yes you can prosecute them i mean it just blows my fucking mind that the supreme court has consistently said go fuck yourselves despite the fact that congress for once in their fucking lives is aligned with what is right there is no ability for tribes to protect their own on their own land on their fucking tribal land when the resources aren't there when they should be and time after time after time again for the last hundreds of years the supreme court has acted as a consistent roadblock to almost anything that the u.s government congress has tried to do to alleviate these issues Despite Congress continuing to evidence an intent to support tribal sovereignty and tribal jurisdiction over non-members that commit crimes on tribal land, the Supreme Court has continued to establish a complex precedential backdrop to govern exercises of tribal authority over non-members. And since the Supreme Court's decision in Oliphant in 1978, the Supreme Court had not yet addressed the issue of a tribal officer's authority to stop non-Indian suspects until the 2021 case and opinion in United States versus Cooley. At around one in the morning on February 26, 2016, Joshua James Cooley and his young child were parked in a white truck on the westbound shoulder of United States Route 212 within the Crow Indian Reservation in southern Montana. James D. Saylor, 
a highway safety officer for the Crow Police Department, passed Cooley's truck while driving eastbound on Route 212. Saylor regularly found motorists on the highway in need of assistance. He also knew that this particular section of Route 212 lacked consistent cell phone reception. Saylor turned around and pulled up behind the truck. He left his patrol car and approached the driver's side of the truck. The truck's engine was running, its headlights were on. The truck's windows were closed and tinted, and the truck appeared to be on a raised suspension, so it was difficult for Saylor to see into the passenger compartment. Saylor knocked on the side of the truck. When he did that, the rear driver's side window briefly lowered, then went up again. Saylor shined his flashlight into the driver's side front window and saw Cooley making a thumbs-down sign with his right hand. Saylor next asked Cooley to lower his window. Cooley complied. He lowered the front driver's side window around six inches, just enough for Saylor to see the top of his face. According to Saylor, Cooley had, quote, watery bloodshot eyes and seemed to be non-native. This is important. Saylor also noticed a young child climbing from the back seat of the truck into the front. Cooley told Saylor that everything was okay. He had stopped driving just because he was tired. But Saylor did not leave at that point. Instead, he asked Cooley more questions. He was suspicious. In response, Cooley reported that he had come from the town of Lame Deer, which is around 26 miles from where the truck was stopped. He was in town to purchase a vehicle from a man named Thomas, and he was not sure of Thomas's last name, but it may have been Spang or Shoulderblade. Saylor knew men with both names, Thomas Spang and Thomas Shoulderblade. Shoulderblade had been a tribal officer for the Northern Cheyenne tribe. Saylor believed Spang was associated with drug trafficking. Cooley's explanations did not add up for Saylor, and he conveyed that sentiment to Cooley. In response, Cooley, quote, became agitated and stated, I don't know how it doesn't make any sense. I told you I came up to buy a vehicle. At some point during this conversation, Cooley brought his child onto his lap. According to Saylor, as this exchange continued, Cooley's hands started to shake. He, quote, began to speak in a lower volume, making it difficult to hear him, and he started to take long pauses before answering questions. Saylor asked Cooley to lower the front window further. When Cooley did so, Saylor noticed what appeared to be two semi-automatic rifles on the front passenger seat of the truck. Still, Saylor continued to ask Cooley about why he had traveled to Lame Deer. At some point during this additional questioning, Saylor asked Cooley for written identification. Instead of retrieving his identification, Cooley twice pulled small bills from his right pocket and placed them in the truck center console. Cooley then put his hand in his pocket yet another time. His breathing became shallow and rapid, according to Saylor, and Cooley, quote, stared straight forward out of the windshield of his truck as if he was looking through his child. Saylor testified that such a thousand-yard stare is to him an indication that a suspect is possibly about to use force. While Cooley's hand was in his pocket, Saylor unholstered his pistol, drew the pistol to his side, and ordered Cooley to stop what he was doing and show his hands. Cooley complied. Sailor then again ordered Cooley to provide him with his, his identification. This time, Cooley handed over his Wyoming driver's license. Sailor attempted to call in Cooley's license number to dispatch, but failed as he was unable to connect. When he then moved to the other side of the truck and opened the passenger side door, Sailor noticed a loaded semi-automatic pistol in the area near Cooley's right hand. Asked why he had not mentioned the pistol earlier, Cooley stated that he did not know the pistol was there. Sailor then took the pistol and disarmed it. At that point, Saylor ordered Cooley to get out of the truck, which he did. After conducting a pat-down, Saylor escorted Cooley and his child to the patrol car. Once there, 
Cooley took some more of his belongings out of his pocket, this time a few small empty plastic bags, and placed them on the hood of Sailor's car. In Sailor's experience, such bags are commonly used to package methamphetamine. Sailor then placed Cooley in the back of his patrol car and called for additional assistance from Crow Reservation officers. He also called for assistance from Bighorn County officers because Cooley, quote, seemed to be non-native. While waiting for backup, Sailor returned to the truck to turn off the engine. There, he found in the cab a glass pipe and a plastic bag that appeared to have methamphetamine in it. After County and Bureau of Indian Affairs officers arrived, the Bureau of Indian, of Indian Affairs officer directed Sailor to conduct an additional search of the truck. He did and discovered more methamphetamine. Cooley was charged in the District of Montana with one count of possession with intent to distribute methamphetamine and one count of possession of a firearm in furtherance of a drug trafficking crime. Cooley's lawyer then moved to suppress the evidence obtained as a result of his encounter with Sailor. His motion argued that Sailor was acting outside the scope of his jurisdiction as a Crow tribe law enforcement officer when he seized Cooley, who was a non-member. The district court granted Cooley's motion. It determined that Sailor had identified Cooley as a non-Indian, quote, when Cooley initially rolled his window down, and that Sailor seized Cooley when he drew his gun, ordered Cooley to show his hands and demanded his driver's license. The court reasoned that a tribal officer cannot detain a non-Indian on a state or federal right-of-way unless it is apparent at the time of the detention that the non-Indian has been violating state or federal law. And that sailor therefore had no authority to seize Cooley when and where he did. Do you understand the absolute broad strokes principle that the court is holding down here with this? It's not just saying, oh, Cooley, the meth and the pipe are suppressed. Okay, no, it's saying, you know what? This is going to be law. This is going to be principle, right? That unless it is apparent to the tribal officer at the time of detention that a non-member is committing federal or state law or violating federal or state law, they cannot detain them ever whatsoever. Do you understand how obscene that is? It's not detention as an arrest. Okay, obviously probable cause, we know that. Okay, we know probable cause needs to exist, right, in any in any uh, uh, custodial arrest. But here it's just talking about a detention, which is what we like to call a Terry stop, which I'll explain to you. A Terry stop is the stop that happens when you're pulled over for speeding, right? You're not arrested for a crime, right? At that point, you, there's no probable cause to arrest you at that point. All there needs to be to stop you in a car, okay, or to, or to stop you in order to, to ask you some questions is reasonable suspicion that the police officer has that you may be involved in criminal activity or a violation of, you know, in, in the car sense, okay, like a, like a speeding ticket sense, involved in a, an infraction, right? Traffic infraction, traffic violation. Terry stops are important because for the purpose of gathering information, quote unquote, for, uh, with respect to criminal activity, police officers are permitted for a very small amount of time to, quote unquote, stop people, right? That's why when you like, if you kept driving, if a police officer is trying to pull you over, like that's a crime, even though the initial stopped by the police officer wasn't necessarily because you were you were right had, they had probable cause to arrest you 
Does this make sense? Amazing. Okay, perfect. Terry stops are important because there's a timeline of essentially interaction that you have with a police officer and the Terry stop, okay, and the stop and frisk that police officers can sometimes do um, is just the initial interaction, which could advance and balloon into probable cause to arrest, okay? But by no means does that not mean that my initial and constant and repetitive recommendation still stands, which is if you are stopped by a police officer, okay, this specifically often comes in person, okay, like on foot, and they're asking you questions, you ask them immediately, am I free to leave? Am I under arrest? Am I under arrest? Am I free to leave? If they say no, then that means you are under arrest and you say, I am exercising my right to remain silent and I want an attorney. If they say, yes, you are free to leave, then you say, okay, I'm leaving and you leave. Got it? Great. Thank you. So like, honest to God, even if, right, like the, 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 the police officer had suspicion that there was criminal activity occurring, like for example, someone fleeing, fleeing the scene of like, oh, I don't know, a rape, okay, an assault, that happened against a tribal woman, against a Native American woman. If there were a bunch of cars, right, leaving and there was one that was trying to flee the scene and it had the exact description of the individual who had raped the woman, okay, the driver was the exact description of that individual, they could not arrest or detain them. Why? Oh, because it, became, it, it wasn't apparent that they were at that time committing state or federal law. For, for tribal officers' uh, ability to actually get some headway when it comes to investigating crimes and actually, um, oh, I don't know, prosecuting them in a way that makes fucking sense, okay? That's how broad that limitation is, okay? The court, the district court, uh, granted the, the um, Cooley's, Cooley's motion to suppress, and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals court upheld it. They affirmed. They said, yep. He didn't have uh, any right to stop him, search his truck, anything like that. The moment that uh, he realized he was a non-member. Specifically, okay, the district court held that tribal officers specifically, okay, the district court and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals rulings held that tribal officers, quote, have no authority to investigate violations of state and federal law by non-Indians on a public right-of-way that crosses the reservation. I repeat, no authority. None. None. Instead, the courts held that tribal officers were required to first ascertain whether a suspected offender was Indian or non-Indian. If the person was non-Indian, the officer could detain the driver only for, like I said, apparent violations of state or federal law. The prosecutor's office appealed they actually filed a petition for writ of certiorari for the supreme court to pick this up and to finally address this issue extent tribal officers have authority to investigate non-members on public quote right of ways that are on tribal land okay the supreme court in 2021 granted the writ of cert and reversed Writing for a unanimous court, Justice Breyer began by outlining the general scope of tribal sovereignty. 
although tribes retain the authority to, for instance, quote, determine tribal membership, regulate domestic affairs among tribal members, and exclude others from entering tribal land, they are limited in their ability to, quote, exercise criminal jurisdiction over non-members. However, since Congress had not divested the tribes of the authority to conduct limited investigatory stops of non-members, Justice Breyer noted, quote, to deny a tribal police officer authority to search and detain for a reasonable time any person he or she believes may commit or has committed a crime would make it difficult for tribes to protect themselves against any ongoing threats. No fucking shit. And not only had the Supreme Court, quote, repeatedly acknowledged the existence of exceptions to limitations of tribal police authority in several cases, but also the Supreme Court has reserved a tribe's inherent sovereign authority to conduct such policing activity on state highways within reservation bounds. The court has also recognized that tribes retain the power to detain non-members and to, quote, transport them to the proper authorities. Just as temporary detention of non-members was rooted in the tribe's power to exclude, Justice Breyer reasoned that Officer Saylor's conduct was rooted in the tribe's inherent sovereign powers as recognized by the Supreme Court in its Montana decision in 1980. United States versus Cooley essentially, okay, affirmed the right of tribal police officers to perform investigatory stops of non-members. This is a clear win for tribes and for tribal policing. This opinion is limited to investigatory stops. It doesn't right reach actual criminal prosecution, actual arrests of individuals, um, and, and the power of actual tribal police officers to do that, okay? This Cooley opinion is very limited to an investigatory stop, right? And the ability for a tribal police officer to, one, initiate that stop to determine that they're a non-member and three continue to investigate even though they're a non-member right without calling in the fucking federal government cavalry of the bureau of, Indi of indian affairs police or a federal bureau of investigations officer fbi right while the court left cooley's broader impact largely unclear the decision nevertheless provides a welcome win for tribal nations okay given the high crime rates within many reservations obviously that are often attributed to non-members, obviously, and the ineffectiveness of state and federal policing, no shit, the court's decision will hopefully allow tribes to protect their communities more effectively. After several decades that have reflected a, quote, growing gap between the court's current Indian law jurisprudence and the realities of tribal life, Cooley, at best, offers a framework for authorizing future exercises of tribal sovereignty over non-members. But at worst, it at least does not make the situation any worse. In sum, often the ensuing confusion over jurisdictional issues suffices to deter investigation and prosecution by any authority. Indeed, since the Supreme Court decision in Oliphant versus Suquamish Indian tribe, which effectively stripped tribes of criminal jurisdiction over non-Indians, tribal law enforcement officials and victim advocates have reported a substantial increase in the number of non-Indian criminals who exploit this gap in jurisdiction and commit crimes on reservations. The failure to prosecute troubles Indian communities, but they lack the political power to oust unsatisfactory state or federal prosecutors. Ultimately, Native American rape victims and victims of violent crimes 
rarely receive justice. Even to the extent that tribal police officers can respond to a crime, okay, that was committed, perpetrated by a non-member, and then hand it over to an FBI agent or a Bureau of Indian Affairs agent, this also presents its own particular issue. FBI agents, right, federal prosecutors can prosecute non-members who commit crimes on Indian land, okay? Uh, Federal crimes specifically, right? Crimes like, oh, I don't know, violence against fucking women, rape, murder, for sure. But like I fucking said, okay, prosecutors decline to prosecute a very high number of these cases. And then often there are very few FBI agents assigned to a particular reservation and their office may be a considerable distance away. You see how these issues are copying and pasting each other, okay? Some of the challenges FBI agents may face have been explained by Dean Washburn, quote, on rural parts of reservations that are accessed by dirt roads without street signs or visible addresses on the homes. Effective investigation may require significant local knowledge of homes and other locations. It may also require some knowledge of family ties and social networks in the community. Because Indian communities are often relatively closed to strangers, federal law enforcement officers such as FBI agents face a significant handicap, unquote. So essentially, relying on federal authorities alone, okay, for the last hundreds of years, and specifically, particularly in the last 50 years, has has not worked. Okay, that shit doesn't work. All right? That is what essentially Native American women and Native American children, Native American people, victims of violent crimes and felonies, okay, on tribal lands, have been doing for the last 50 years. And that has resulted in Native American women uh, being 2.5 times more likely to be victim of violent sexual crimes and also 10 times more likely to be murdered on tribal lands. A trend. Okay, this is a trend. It's not a fluke. It's a trend. Federal law enforcement officers have not had the manpower resources that are required for them to adequately retain jurisdiction over prosecuting and investigating these crimes committed on tribal lands okay if y'all really want to be the ones in charge then y'all better have the resources to be in charge of it and they don't okay and obviously as i've told you tribal police officers um even to the extent that they try to investigate on their own okay and 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 potentially investigate to be able to maybe potentially hand over the prosecute the the prosecutorial role to the federal agents. Um, yeah, the Supreme Court has restricted them to say that y'all don't have any uh, power over non-members, so you can't fucking do that. So, uh, yeah, it is clear that relying on federal authorities alone to exercise their jurisdiction will never solve the crisis of violence on tribal lands. Instead, a real partnership is necessary to protect the lives of Native women living in tribal communities. Any effective partnership between federal, state, and tribal law enforcement is impossible when tribal law enforcement are without the authority to even stop and detain or investigate a crime on a reservation simply because the crime was committed by a non-Indian. For that reason, thankfully, the Supreme Court in Cooley has now given and provided tribal police officers the authority to stop, detain, and investigate a crime, okay, an individual pursuant to a Terry stop, all right, 
even if it's a non-member on tribal land. However, this still doesn't give them the authority to prosecute crimes that rise to the level of very violent crimes, okay, like the murder, like the missing indigenous women, like 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 violent rapes, violent assaults, without requiring the help from federal authorities to exercise their jurisdiction and power to prosecute these crimes. The travesty of all of this, okay, is obviously that justice for Native women is, is rare. Native women getting justice that they need, even when they write down the full government names of their attackers on a piece of fucking paper dying on their hospital bed. Yeah, um, they, they rarely get the justice that they deserve and that they require. But in addition to that, it it absolutely exacerbates the problem of women and victims of crimes having absolutely no faith in the officers, the prosecutors, or the system that will even arrive and answer their call in order to have a system that actually honors the indigenous and native communities that have been persecuted and victimized and demoralized and murdered and raped and killed for hundreds of years, the United States and our Congress needs to act because the Supreme Court isn't doing enough. And to the extent the Supreme Court can't do enough, Congress needs to act. And they have acted, but they need to do better. My final rebuttal on this issue is that if anger were enough, to grant these women, these people, our indigenous population justice, they would have it in droves. It would be endless and it would be lethal and it would be absolutely awe-inspiring. But anger is not enough. Victims need justice. Victims on tribal lands need justice. Native American, indigenous people, women, children need justice. And without the Violence Against Women Act, staying in place but also authorizing greater protections to Native American women and children but also greater authority to tribal police officers and tribal justice systems to actually do their part to prosecute these crimes, prosecute these perpetrators, justice will never be realized. And tribes to this day still lack the ability to prosecute murder independently. They still lack the ability to prosecute most felonies independently. Most of the most important nauseating violent crimes that are committed on tribal lands by non-members, tribal police officers, tribal prosecutors lack the authority and ability to prosecute. And if the federal government doesn't want to provide the resources necessary for the federal fucking government, the FBI, the Bureau of Indian Affairs Police to actually be able to prosecute themselves meritoriously, then um, let's give tribal lands, tribal justice systems, tribes, the fucking power to do it themselves. I'm fucking tired. We're all fucking tired. And if I do anything, if I've done anything, if I've 
done anything with this episode, with this podcast, I hope it can be to instill in your minds and urge you as a voter in America, whether you are a member or non-member of an Indian tribe, to petition your representatives and your Congress members and the people that you fucking vote for to fight for justice for the most underrepresented community in our country, in the political system, Native Americans, indigenous citizens and communities, the ones who don't have a seat at the table, who haven't had a seat at the table, should get one. But in the meantime, in the fucking meantime, just because people who look like me or people who look like you who are non-members are in those chairs doesn't mean they shouldn't fight for them. I'm pissed. I'm happy about the Cooley decision, but I'm pissed. And until tribal lands have the authority to prosecute, all of these heinous crimes that occur on their lands by non-members, um, I'm going to continue being fucking pissed. This has been episode 10 of the Rebuttal Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. Follow us everywhere. Subscribe to us everywhere. But also, goddamn, Google is free. Do some research. Do some research and vote accordingly. Love you guys. Thank you.